Morning, everybody. What a great time of worship we got to have this morning, hey? It's so cool getting to come and speak to you after God's just ministered to us like that. Um, we're in our second part this morning of our Broken City series on how to care better for the materially poor as well as the spiritually poor. And I wanted to start off just by sharing a story with you of when I was in university in America, I decided on one of the spring break holidays I was going to take a trip um, with Habitat for Humanity to go and build houses. So Habitat for Humanity is a nonprofit organization who generally go in and either try and improve or build new homes in poorer communities. And so I got on a plane from Boston with a few of my friends and we flew out to California all the way across the country. We went to a small place called Oakland where we landed up building houses for a week with Habitat for Humanity. And I must say, unfortunately, my entire week there was incredibly disappointing, mostly because of how bad we were at building. And um, it felt like most of the time we were just setting the process back, actually, with how poorly equipped we were to do anything construction-related. And uh, I'll share one specific example um, I remember clearly um, they had actually laid a bunch of really important electrical cables under the road that went through a conduit that was cemented into the road. And for whatever reason, my buddy and I were given the job of pulling the slack of these electrical cables um, until they were ready, and then they were going to be plugged into the various houses. And I remember as we were pulling the slack, thinking to myself, man, we better be careful not to pull too hard, or this thing is going to go under the road, and then just like that, that is exactly what happened. And... Um, I know, it seems like the simplest thing not to do wrong, and yet with our incredible building prowess, we were able to go when none had gone before us. And uh, I unfortunately had to go and go hit, hat in hand to find the building foreman, someone who was actually very skilled, take him away from something that he was doing that was actually helpful to come and fix our stuff up. And I share that story with you because at the time, I left Oakland thinking, man, the money I spent on flights and accommodation and food could have actually been better spent if I just hadn't come at all. We could have just hired someone who is a better builder than me and they could have done this, built this house in half the time and these people would have had a home without having to scrounge around in the dirt looking for electrical cables. See, I don't know if you're like me, but often we tend to think that we want to do well in, core, in caring for the materially poor and yet the way that we go about it either lands up hurting them or hurting us, which then either leads to us withdrawing altogether or trying to just throw more money at the problem to try and make it better, which is sort of my response to my Habitat for Humanity experience. The title of my message today is that good intentions are not enough. And what I want us to try and do this morning is something quite radical. I want to take a wrecking ball to how we have perhaps traditionally thought of what it looks like to care for the materially poor. Because if you're anything like me, caring for the poor often, I think, translates into thinking, well, I need to just be more financially generous. You know, I need to give more money. It's usually one-way traffic, kind of a top-down mentality of me doing something awesome for somebody who desperately needs me to save them. Essentially, it's me buying my way out of either feeling guilty about something or having to think too deeply about the complexity of this problem of poverty. But let's take a look at what the Bible says um, about how we've been created and how we should now behave towards one another once we've been saved. So we're going to turn to Colossians 3, verses 10 to 16, which says this. 
put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with hearts of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive any complaint you may have against someone else. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which is the bond of perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, for, for to this you are called as members of one body, and be thankful. Now maybe you hear that passage and you're like, it doesn't sound like that really has anything to do with caring for the materially poor. It sounds much more like it's speaking about our relationships between us as Christians. And well, the good news is that the main thesis statement for this morning is that our care for the vulnerable must primarily seek to restore broken relationships. Our broken relationship with each other as well as our broken relationship vertically with God. And the passage from Colossians talks about how we're all created in God's image, whether we're saved or not saved, but those of us who are saved and have placed our faith in Christ and crossed the line of faith, now, for us, there's no more rich or poor. There's no more Boxburg or northern suburbs. There's no more chiefs or pirates. There's not even any bulls or lions. I'm sorry, Greg. Instead, for those of us who've been saved, now Christ is all and is in all. And as such, we're called to clothe ourselves in all these things, you know, compassion, kindness, humility, to bear with one another in all things, and over all of that, to put on love so that we can get along as one body. I don't know about you, but that sounds like an incredibly tough ask to me. It is difficult to bear with each other, you know, to love each other, to express kindness and generosity to one another as we seek to actively be one body who are equal. See, we are called, though, to do these things. And the world wants to divide us a lot of the time with all these stark lines of wealth and status that tend to split us up. But if we really want what this Colossians is talking about, calling us as believers, then I'm afraid that being financially generous only, while it's a fantastic first step, cannot be where our good intentions end if we actually want to see lasting impact and God's kingdom here on our planet. Why don't I pray for us before we go any further? Father God, thank you for the opportunity to talk about this. It is a delicate subject. I thank you that you are the ultimate reconciling God who has sought to reconcile your relationship with us. Won't you help me as we discuss this? Won't you, Holy Spirit, be active as we listen to you about what it means to restore relationship between ourselves? to put on love as we bear with one another as one body, Father God. Amen. So in order to unpack this much more complex idea of what it means to care for the materially poor and how that relates to our sometimes brokenness, I want to touch on three main points this morning. The first is that not all poverty is created equal. Secondly, we need to begin with needs, not uh, with assets, not needs. And finally, we're going to end with Gospel is the great equalizer. So firstly, not all poverty is created equal. What I mean by that is that these days you can pretty much turn on the news and you might see a story about how a tsunami has wiped out a bunch of people in Thailand and they have been plunged into crisis. 
And the very next story in the news might be talking about the increase in homelessness in the inner city of Johannesburg. And it's very easy for us to think those two things seem like pretty much the same problem and they kind of need the same solution applied to them. And yet, if you pay a little bit more attention, actually, these are two very different types of poverty at different stages. See, when thinking about the materially poor, a good first step is to try and determine what is the best response to the particular type of poverty that is being experienced. And I want to propose to you that there's really three different responses. They are relief, rehabilitation, and development. And if you take a look at this diagram behind me here, um, if you think of somebody going along their normal life, things are all right, and then suddenly a crisis strikes, and they are plunged into some sort of crisis, some sort of disaster, and they need relief immediately. It's as if they are metaphorically bleeding and they need someone to stop the bleeding for them. They need relief. However, once the bleeding has stopped, they need rehabilitation. Coming out the other side, getting back to where they were as somebody walks alongside them, and ultimately moving into the future, they need someone to walk along and work with them, not for them or to them, but with them in development. Relief, rehabilitation, and development. Now, relief can be defined as the urgent, temporary provision of emergency aid to reduce immediate suffering from a natural or man-made crisis, like a flood or a fire or an earthquake, sometimes like a war or even a bad injury or loss of a job. And the key feature of relief is that it's a provider-receiver dynamic in which the provider gives assistance, usually material, to the receiver who's largely incapable of helping himself for a period of time. Rehabilitation starts, like I was saying, the minute that metaphorical bleeding stops. And rehabilitation seeks to restore people and their communities to the positive elements of their pre-crisis conditions. The key feature of rehabilitation is working with the tsunami victims as they participate in their own recovery. Development is the process of ongoing change that moves all the people involved, both the helpers and the helped, closer to being in a right relationship with God, with each other, and with creation. And development is not done to people, it is very much done with people. Now, one of the biggest mistakes that we can make is when we try to apply relief to situations that actually need rehabilitation or development. See, for most people that you and I are gonna interact with, the bleeding for them has actually stopped. They're not destitute at the moment, and for us to continue to treat them as if they are destitute does more harm than good to both them and to ourselves. It's easy to understand, obviously, why we often want to use relief as the first point of call, because relief is actually easier than development, right? It's much easier to drop food out of planes across Africa. It's much easier to just give some money to the guy at the robot as I drive by than it is to actually form long-lasting, time-consuming relationships that might be like really emotionally taxing on me. I'm one of nine children, started out as one of three. I have two biological siblings, I have two step-siblings, and I have four adopted siblings. Um, and the reason I have four adopted siblings is because my dad read a passage in James 1 verse 27 that says this, Religion that, our God, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So he read that, 
and he went out looking for orphans in the community that he lived in. And initially, he was thinking, well, I just want to provide relief to them. You know, I'll give some money and maybe give some food. But by God's providence, he was guided 17 years ago to find my brother Ben, who was one years old at the time and living with his three older siblings on the concrete garage floor and knocking on death's door. Ben was on his way out almost. And relief in that situation looked like my mom and dad basically taking Ben into their home immediately just to try and keep him alive. But relief, interestingly, very quickly transitioned like a gateway for them into rehabilitation. If they just continued to just give him stuff and left him to his own devices, he would have turned out very differently. But rehabilitation, working with him, loving him, maturing him, led as well to development. And interestingly, all of us, the extended family, me and the rest of the family, the most amazing thing was to see how we were changed by having Ben in our life as he was changed as well. And our relationships with each other were reconciled as were our relationships with Christ and with him. So it was this two-way traffic all through. See, don't get me wrong. If you're stirred up to be more financially generous by this series, that is a great first step. And it's something we desperately do need more of. However, we would be naive if we didn't look very carefully at the many pitfalls of only applying relief to every situation. You see, first of all, it can create this kind of God complex where the providers are the ones giving the relief and it further enforces the recipient's feeling of inferiority. But worse than that is when Relief is applied to situations that really need rehabilitation. This top-down, I'm here to save you kind of mentality can seriously undermine the development of those people receiving the relief's initiative and stewardship themselves. Ultimately, what I mean by that is that bad relief actually undermines worship. See, the root issue is that God, who is a worker, ordained work as a way for us to actually be able to worship Him. So when we keep applying relief to people who actually need rehabilitation or development, it can often cause them to stop working for themselves, which then either limits their relationship with God through distorted worship or no worship at all. Which brings us to the biggest stumbling block I think a lot of us are going to deal with as we seek to help the materially poor, and that is this thing called paternalism. The basic definition of paternalism is that it's when you do something for somebody that they can actually do for themselves. In this context, we might more accurately refer to it as the poison of paternalism, and it comes in all different shapes and sizes that seek to rob us of being able to forge reconciled relationships with one another. I want to give you just three examples of the types of paternalism that maybe you will recognize as I talk about them in how you might have tried to help people in the past. So the first is spiritual paternalism. This is when we feel like, well, I'm the one providing the help or the aid here, therefore I should be the one talking about God to you. I should be the one leading the, the sermon here. Or I should be the one, if we go on a short-term missions, we should be running the Bible school or preaching. And we overlook the fact that often the materially poor have a much deeper walk with God and insights that they could share with us if we just stopped talking so much and listened for once. Knowledge paternalism is when we assume that, well, because I'm the one giving the aid, I'm the one who has all the best answers to everything. I know how to do things or how to manage the situation, how to get a good solution out of this. And we need to remember that actually 
The materially poor are created in God's image, like we've been saying from the beginning, and they have the ability to think and understand the world around them. Labor paternalism is when we actually physically do work for other people that they could do for themselves. So the list goes on and on of these different forms of paternalism. And maybe it feels like I've laid out a bit here with um, the things we shouldn't be doing as we seek to care for the poor, but it's important for us to weed out like some of these bad habits that we've been doing that may be hurting the poor and ourselves in our often misguided application of only relief, only finances. But let's move on to my second point where we start to delve into how can we provide this kind of help and care in a better way. Begin with assets, not with needs. What I mean by that is that any relationship with a low-income individual, if that relationship starts with the question, what is wrong with you? And how can you be fixed? It is immediately incredibly demoralizing to the materially poor person and self-aggrandizing to ourselves. Imagine if, if God treated us like that, you know? Only looked at us as like, what is wrong with you? And what are the things that need to be fixed? That's not how he sees us at all. He sees us as his beautiful creations made in his image. He sees us full of potential. He loves us. He pursued us way before we ever even knew about him. And what happens when we do cross the line of faith, when we believe in him, what does he do? He doesn't give us a list of things we now need to go and correct in our lives and be better about. No, straight off the bat, he gives us a brand new identity. He calls us sons and daughters of Christ. Isn't that amazing? And then from that new identity, that amazing status, then he calls us to go and live out our salvation. An easy acronym here to help remember this principle of beginning with assets instead of needs is ABCD, which stands for Asset-Based Community Development. And what that does is it helps put the emphasis on what the materially poor person already has, asking them to consider from the outset what is right with them, what is good about them, what gifts has God given them that they could use to uplift themselves as well as to uplift the community with with within which they live. See, the very nature of the questions, what gifts do you have, affirms a person's dignity. And it contributes to the process of overwhelming this poverty of being, of just who I am. Think how many times Jesus did this with pretty much everybody that he interacted with. He's constantly looking for something good within them to draw out. I'll give you just one example. When he feeds the 5,000, it's an amazing story. He's on the side of the mountain. All these people are incredibly hungry. And he doesn't say to them, why are you so hungry? You know, what's wrong with you? What do you need to be fixed? No, he says to his disciples, he turns to them and he says, what bread do you have? He asks them, what's the thing that they have? Tell me about what you've got. And imagine the little boy, man, at the back of the crowd, getting called forward by the disciples and Jesus. And he's like, well, all I've got is this five loaves and two fish, you know. And then getting to see Jesus take the small thing he has and feed Thousands of people, you know? Imagine that little boy going home to tell his friends and his mom who packed his lunch, like, how incredible that was. Jesus taking this small little thing of his and doing this incredible, incredible miracle with it. Our basic predisposition should be to see poor communities as being created by Jesus Christ and reflective of his goodness. So when we enter a pure community, community it's, it's like we're walking on holy ground. We're not the first ones there. God was there long before us. He created this place and he's been there long before us, working in that community 
since the creation of the world. You know, Simon, who preached last week, tells this great story that he said I could relate to you guys. Um, he's leading our efforts to plant a new church into Makers Valley, and because of that, he's been doing prayer walks through the area in Makers Valley. And um, he tells the story of how he was walking along one day, and they were praying for different people in different geographic locations. And as he was walking a bit further, someone came running after him. They're like, Simon, Simon, stopped him. And they wanted to take him to this little prayer group that met in one of the houses locally. Simon very excitedly went along, only get into this house to find there was this room full of older community women who had been meeting week after week over the last few years to pray. And one of the specific things they'd been praying for was that God would send godly men of faith into their community. Isn't that incredible? You know, too often... We think of ourselves as we are the great Savior, like riding into a place, and we're praying, God, please go with us as we go in there, not realizing, man, God has gone before us long before we were ever there, working in that place, preparing it for us before we even thought to go there. Which brings me to my last point, which is that the gospel is the great equalizer. See, there's a tendency, maybe as I've been talking this morning, to feel like there's such a stark divide between the materially poor and the materially wealthy, that how could we ever work alongside each other and help each other without hurting one another? I mean, maybe as you're sitting here, you feel like you associate more with one group than the other. And that temptation is to think, yeah, we're so different, you know. We just won't be able to do this without misunderstanding each other and, and hurting each other. And yet, the reality is that we're created in God's image. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And for those of us who are saved, the only reason we're saved is because we are equally saved by grace and grace alone. Not because of our wealth, certainly not because of our humility, and definitely not because of our good works. Julius Tennell says this, he says, The gospel brings together those who were once enemies by humbling the proud and lifting up the humble, making them one in Christ so that they love one another and pursue justice together. You know, think of Paul's instruction to Philemon, the series we just finished recently. Paul tells Philemon to receive back his former slave, Onesimus, to receive him back as a brother. You know what that means is that part of Philemon receiving Onesimus back was that they were no longer, Philemon no longer had the power. He wasn't the one in control. They were, they were brothers now, brothers in Christ. And being equal requires participation from both parties. Probably one of the biggest reasons poverty alleviation is so slow around the entire world is because of a lack of participation of the materially poor in the process because they're so often sidelined by the very dogmatic way in which the materially wealthy are trying to go about doing this. And the reason the materially poor tend not to participate is because the attempts to care for them, often work themselves out in the materially wealthy, trying to do things to or for the poor rather than with them. And until we can grasp that we're all made in God's image, we all need to repent, we all need to be reconciled to God, but also to one another, we're doomed to work at each other rather than with each other. What I'm trying to say here is that we shouldn't get so obsessed with the end product that we often have that comes from a good motivation. Perhaps that end product is 
man, I want to see this person get their driver's license. I want to help this person go through a business course. I want to build this um, school in a small local community. We have this end goal that we get kind of obsessed with, but we shouldn't miss out on the process of getting there together, working together in reconciled relationships, which might not ever complete that goal because the process is as important an end in itself as the end we're trying to reach. I think of um, building Lego with my six-year-old Sam, and um, often my priority when we're doing that is, you know, I want to get it done as fast as we can, push all the pieces together, and complete what's on this little instruction manual, you know. His priority is just to spend time with me. Or perhaps his priority is to build something completely different to what's on this map that I'm determinedly, doggedly trying to get us to finish. And the more I try to ram my priority down his throat, the further apart we are and the less likely we are to be able to love each other, enjoy each other, learn from each other, and be reconciled to one another. Participation is not just a means to an end, but it is a legitimate end on its own. Let that be an encouragement to you when you're feeling like, man, this is so hard, it didn't work again, my efforts here failed, or that's bad. Think about what it's like to participate with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, as one body, doing this together. It's impossible to accomplish this kind of reconciliation of relationships when the outsiders, the materially wealthy, are the ones deciding what to do, how to do it, and how well it worked. The approach undermines poor people's ability to try something for themselves and then realize whether it worked or didn't work. It denies them the opportunity to be what God created them to be, which is image bearers, who through their own trial and error unpack and unfold the wonders of God's creation. And it's amazing to see this incredible parallel of how we might participate with the materially poor to how God participates with us in working out our salvation. You know, God doesn't just slap a one-size-fits-all salvation on all of us, you know. No, He allows us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Oftentimes, he allows us to fail more than we succeed, actually. You know, if you pray and you ask God for patience, he doesn't just slap patience on you and make you patient. He gives you a situation which is oftentimes very trying in which you are able to practice patience and grow in patience. Gives you kids, which is very difficult, and then you've got to be patient, and you learn that skill through trial and error. God's already been at work reconciling our relationship to Him in the most incredible way. One of the greatest callings on our lives can be how we start to reconcile the relationships we have horizontally with one another. So can I encourage you in this week to start to think practically about simple things like there are different types of poverty, how to apply relief, rehabilitation, development, and how to move perhaps away from just applying relief all the time and more than any of those, to know that the gospel is this great equalizer. We're the same. Christ is in all of us the same, of those of us who have been saved. And actually, as brothers and sisters, we get to be restored in relationship to one another as we seek to strive towards this goal of glorifying God as one body. Let me pray for us. Father God, I just want to reiterate, thank you so much that you are the great reconciler. It was your idea to redeem us and to want to restore a relationship with us. It's just almost beyond comprehension that you would want to do that with us. Won't you help us 
in the coming days, just the next few days, Lord, to be practical in how we start to see and love our brothers and sisters around the city. Won't you soften our hearts? Won't you take away our um, priorities around doing things only our own way, but help us to be more careful and gentle and loving and putting on humility, kindness, and gentleness as we seek to love one another and restore relationship in the ways that we provide for the materially poor. Thank you, Father God. Amen.